The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Vinnie Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. This week, we have another audio edition of the Court TV original true crime series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, focusing on one of the many sensational cases coming out of Southern California in the 90s, the murder of Warner Brothers record executive and devoted single mother, Dixie Hollier. But this is not a case of who did it. Police caught Jeffrey Ayers, her daughter's boyfriend, in the act. Investigators had to piece together why Ayers did it and if someone else close to Hollier could have been involved. Featuring interviews with Detective Matthew Miranda, legal analyst Ann Bremner, and forensic psychologist Michelle Vorwerk, this is Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, The Odd Couple. This is the Court TV Podcast. As soon as I can arrange it, your mother and sister will trouble you no more. I said, do you know this guy? She goes, never seen him before. Dad, to had, she was inherently evil. By all counts, he fell head over heels in love. All of a sudden, she just said, if you don't do something about my mother, I'm going to kill myself. Southern California was no stranger to infamous criminal cases. The Menendez brothers and the O.J. Simpson trial each grabbed headlines and people's attention all across the world. But there was another sensational case that seems right out of a Hollywood screenplay. And sadly, this story reads like a horror film. Burbank is about 12 miles outside of Los Angeles. It's considered the media capital of the world. Some of the biggest movie studios and television studios are there. It is a place that is kind of indicative of Southern California. Dixie Hollier was a mother of three. She's a member of a local church community, well-loved by her neighbors. Dixie was in her early 40s. She worked locally at a record company. She was an executive. She lived alone with her three kids, two girls and a young boy. By all accounts from her coworkers and neighbors, she's a devoted mother, working very hard to provide for her family. Amber Bray was very intelligent. She was very pretty, very well liked at school. She was an all-American girl. She was an honor student and cheerleader when she started high school, but early on starts to develop truancy problems. Amber actually was combative. She had a lot of problems with her mother. That's reported from neighbors. There was arguments and fights. Typical teenager fights with your parents. Neighbors heard them fighting quite often, verbally fighting. And she wasn't going to school. She got kicked out of one school, going to get kicked out of the second school, and just wanted to do what she wanted to, to do. On January 16th, 1996, approximately 4.45 to 5 o'clock in the morning, the family was asleep. I was a watch commander at Burbank Police Department. We were eating breakfast in the early morning hours. It's always my rule of thumb that if you get through to 4 o'clock without something involved happening, you're going to coast through the rest of the shift. So I looked at my watch and I go, eh, good. 
the assailant will use an unlocked back door. He's armed with a pistol. Dixie was in her room, fast asleep. He enters the bedroom. He takes aim and fires. Misses Dixie the first time, but the gunshot will alert neighbors who immediately call 911. Call went out on the radio with the alert tone, which just immediately gets your adrenaline flowing. Residential home invasion in progress, shots fired, multiple neighbors calling in the same activity. And we all knew without saying a word, this is a big deal. Dixie bolts up. He starts hitting her with a pistol in the head and face. He fires two more shots. Dixie goes down on the ground, but she's still alive. She's struggling. He is out of ammunition, so he goes to the kitchen, grabs a kitchen knife, and he plunges it directly into her neck with such force that it actually breaks the handle of the knife. He then returns to the kitchen and finds two more knives and repeatedly stabs her over and over and over again. We drive taking care to turn the sirens off way before we got even close so that it wouldn't alert anybody inside. We got to the front door, looked in a side window, and I saw a figure over top of a what looked like a body on the ground thrusting a knife into the, the body. I said, we're going in right now. They drew their weapons. You're walking in as somebody's murdering someone else. I can't imagine how that would stick with a person. In we go, and when we enter the house, fully expecting, because someone's in there, that we're gonna have a raging gun battle with multiple suspects, no doubt in my mind. They come in and they see the assailant mid-stab, covered in blood of Dixie Hollier. As soon as they call for him to stop, that he's under arrest, he drops the knife, he puts his hands up, and he says that he did it. Uh, you got me. He's put his hands up, and as calmly as I'm talking to you right now, he says, I'm responsible for everything you see here. I'm not going to resist arrest. All I ask is that when you handcuff me, please take care with my right arm. I've got bursitis in my right shoulder, and if you could kind of go easy with that, I would appreciate it. The police arrive just in time to catch the murderer in the act, but too late to save Dixie Hollier's life. For the arresting officers, that surreal and horrible moment will be something none of them will ever be able to forget. In all my experience, when you confront someone who's in the process of committing a crime, they either run or they fight. I'd never seen this. He was very calm, but his hands were dripping in blood. And in my mind, at that moment, I said, we got this guy red-handed. And then some part of my brain said, that's where that comes from, blood dripping off the hands. In the heat of the moment, some part of my brain is analyzing words and throwing that back into my conscious mind. But we did have him red-handed. I told Officer Wolf, handcuff the guy. As soon as the other cuff clicked, we had to step over Dixie. I knew quickly that she was dead. The people start coming out of the back bedroom. And as Amber came out, I said, do you know this guy? She goes, never seen him before. Sister came out. I said, do you know who this is? She goes, it's my sister's boyfriend. I told Officer Wolf, pin her down to a statement right now. When the first officers went through the door, he immediately gave up and said, you caught me, you caught me. From that point on, it seemed to us like he was protecting 
the older daughter. When the sister said, that's my sister's boyfriend, boy, everything, everything changed for all of us. At first, Amber said she didn't know Jeffrey. She denied even knowing him. So that, that was a start, because clearly, you know, in interviews, they learned that they were a couple. Jeff Ayers was, I can't call him an outcast, but he was a little different. He worked part-time at McDonald's. An apt description of Jeffrey would be the typical 21-year-old kid who hasn't necessarily found a, a, a path. I learned from my partner who spoke with his aunt that when he was born, his father took one look at him and knew this is not my son. His mother really did not embrace who he was. He was half African-American, half Caucasian, and his mother being Caucasian did not accept who he was. Jeff was someone who lived a fantastical life. Video games, Dungeons and Dragons, someone who is retreating, often goes into a fantasy life to escape the reality of their situation. Personality is shaped by attachment. As humans, we all have to have what's called a secure attachment in order to feel safe and loved and cared for in the world. Having that secure attachment really forms the groundwork for the person being able to have relationships, healthy relationships later in life. So someone who has not had a secure attachment can come out in two different ways. One is called externalization and the other is internalization. Internalizing would be somebody who became more withdrawn, reclusive. They really create their own world, sometimes even a fantasy world where someone retreats into movies, video games, social media. And unfortunately, that can develop into different types of personality disorders. He never had warmth, love, any of that. I mean, his whole life was just complete isolation. Everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be cared for. And an individual who hasn't had that in the past, they will search for that. I believe Jeff had never had a girlfriend before. To me, he appeared a bit shy and awkward. And when he had met Amber, by all counts, he fell head over heels in love. And so often, the first time you fall, anytime you fall in love, you're going to be very attentive and try to please the person you're with. The fact that they were a couple was surprising because they were so different. She was very pretty cheerleader. Jeffrey Ayers was Dungeons and Dragons and a loner. I guess if you say opposites attract, that would be the case here. She would confide in him, and I think the fact that she would pay any attention to him at all was very powerful. He wanted to please her and was going to do whatever it took. They had to have it. It was either her or Amber. She was inherently evil. Investigators have good reason to suspect Amber Bray may have been involved with her mother's murder. What they need is proof but Jeffrey Ayers still maintains he acted alone. The police begin to dig deeper. Who is Amber Bray? The younger sister tries to call 911, and Amber pulls the phone out of the wall to disconnect that call. When the call is silenced by somebody inside the house, you know that there's, 
there's problems going on there. When we learned that Amber unplugged the phone, that opened up a whole other avenue that needed to be looked at. We were concerned that this was a conspiracy and not just a sole person being involved. Did Jeff act by himself, or was Amber somehow involved? The police are set on that she has something to do with it. What her extent of her involvement is not really known at the time. They don't want to take chances on arresting her without probable cause and without the right evidence. The investigation really starts and ends with Jeff. There's really not much to figure out. We have the person who did it early on. I think one of the quotes is, this isn't a whodunit, it's a why they did it. It was the early morning hours, and I was called to the station to interview the prime suspect. Jeff, you understand you're, you've been arrested for murder? Yes, I do. You've been arrested for the murder of uh, Dixie Hollier? Yes. Okay. We wanted to learn why. What made him do this? This is, this is why I can't deny what I've done. It's, I'm guilty. That's just it. There's no denying that I committed a crime and I have to pay, but they had to have it. It was either her or Amber. What do you mean when she's driven around? In easiest terms, she was the worst person I've ever met. She was inherently evil. His explanation was that Dixie was the most evil person in the world. I didn't want to hurt Amber. They never did anything to me. But Dixie never did anything to you. She was, she was, she was an evil person. She never did anything to you. But she was an evil person. And she didn't like me very much to begin with. Was that the reason why you killed her? Because no. she didn't like you? No. Not at all. People don't like me. I don't care what it's because she of what has happened to Amber over the last 14 years. They find a lot of inconsistencies, especially when it comes to how well and how long he's known Amber. First, he says they're friends, they're really good friends, then it's best friends, and eventually, by the end, it's, yeah, they are dating, they have, they've had some kind of relationship, and then eventually it's, yes, we are dating, we've had a sexual relationship. How old is Amber? She's 18 now. 18. Okay. And you met her? Well, the first time, the first casual meeting was last time, last year, at this time. And then I got to know her in July of last year. Okay. And we've been friends ever since. What kind of relationship do you have with Amber? Is it a boyfriend, girlfriend? Something like that. She's a really close personal friend of mine. Do you date her? Um, we go places together. It was very clear to us that he was doing whatever he could not to implicate Amber at all in this. I just went and spoke to Amber. She tells me that she lets you in the back door, adjacent to her bedroom, okay? Now, who's lying here? No, I can tell by your face, Jeff. Roland. Tell us, tell us what happened. She let you in. She didn't know. She knew, didn't she? She didn't know what I was going to do. No, you discussed this the night before. Okay. I want the truth. That's the truth. When we brought up her unplugging the phone, 
he just said, this is all on me. She had nothing to do with it. Jeff early on says that he did this alone. He'll then start to open up about the fact that Amber was suicidal, her mother Dixie Hollier was evil, that Dixie constantly abused Amber repeatedly, and this was driving her to suicide, and Amber had nowhere to turn. And so Jeff took it upon himself to intervene, and Dixie had to be stopped. The day of the homicide, I spoke with Jeffrey Ayer's mother. When I first saw his mother, I noticed that she was white, and I made the comment, I thought Jeff was black. And that really upset her. She came back at me, he's not black. So I wanted to confirm that Jeff lived with her. I anticipated a search warrant being written. My opinion was we need to go to this guy's house and see what's there. In the house, they find computer disks, letters. They even find a diagram of Dixie's home. But what really is kind of the lightning rod for the police is the letters between Amber Bray and Jeffrey Ayers. A group of us went to Jeff's two-bedroom apartment, and I was detailed to look in Jeff's room. I almost immediately found this handwritten note on notebook paper, spiral, torn out of the book, and it was titled Someday in November. A piece of paper was found in, in Amber's handwriting that was basically a, a timeline of get a gun, get ammunition, come to the house, shoot mom, shoot sister, I'll unlock the front door, we'll take the credit cards out of the wallet, we'll take the insurance money and buy a house in Moreno Valley and raise the little guy as our own. It is really a blueprint for what eventually happened. Amber talks in the letter about how she'll take the kids to the movies. Jeff can come in and kill her mom and get away with it, and no one will be the wiser. The neighbors will think it's a break-in. We take the $310,000 insurance money. We get married. We move to Riverside and start our new life together with little Benjamin, the five-year-old brother. This was Amber's smoking gun. All of a sudden, they put two and two together, and she's a suspect, and she's arrested. Amber denied that she'd done anything wrong. Jeff acted on his own. She didn't know anything else. She threw him under the bus, but Jeffrey wasn't going to give Amber up. The trial of Amber Bray and Jeffrey Ayers is unique before it even begins. They'll both be tried together with a single judge presiding. However, each defendant will also have their own separate jury. Instead of 12, there will be 24 people responsible for finding justice. This is an odd case because it wasn't just a defendant and the prosecution and one jury. What you really have is the prosecution, one defendant, two defendants and two separate juries that actually took different times in the jury box. The jury that's seated in the jury box, the heirs jury, uh, the purple dot jury, uh, will get the jury box today. Tomorrow, uh, I'll have you seated in the audience and we'll have members of the Bray jury, the green jury, come up and take seats in the jury box. It's very unusual to have defendants tried together, especially in a case where they have really disparate um, potential involvement. I mean, at least in terms of the quantum of the evidence. They're very different cases. 
Mr. McKenzie, you may present the people's opening statement. Thank you very much, Your Honor. All of you know that Mr. Ayers and Ms. Bray are charged with two things. They're charged with the crime of murder. The alleged victim was Dixie Lee Hollier, who was the mother of Amber Bray. They're also charged with conspiracy. Al McKenzie is a very bright prosecutor. The defense attorneys call him the prince because he is so polite, never did any gotchas, everything was up front. This was a letter that was written by the defendant, Amber Mary Bray, to the defendant, Jeffrey Glenn Ayers, dated someday in November. Dear Jeffrey, what do you think of this? Me, you, you and Benji all go out one night. Someone breaks into the house and kills Amy and mom. I and Benji come home to discover them, call the police, neighbors hear nothing, and it goes on record as an unsolved homicide. I like it. Mr. Ayers responded with his own letter. I meant what I, meant what I, I said on the phone. As soon as I can arrange it, your mother and sister will trouble you no more. Even if plan A doesn't work out, there's always plan B. And if that fails, I'll do it myself. Letters written by the defendants to each other show a plan to murder the mother of Amber Bray to try to collect some $310,000. The plan that Amber Bray concocted that this would go off as an unsolved homicide didn't work because Burbank police officers got to the scene as the defendant, Jeffrey Ayers, was still over the body, stabbing Dixie Lee Hollier to death. This was not an unsolved homicide. And we have Mr. Ayers and Ms. Bray now before you on trial. The prosecution strategy was really, we have the evidence, we know who killed them, we have the letters. It's the first time in a long time that I saw a case where it was A plus B equals C. We caught the murderer red-handed. We found letters that point to the fact that the murderer was in collusion with the victim's daughter, and that's the case. This is not going to be a case of who done it, but rather a case of why the crime was committed. Jeff Ayers had Patty Mulligan as a defense attorney. Her one goal was to prevent him from receiving the death penalty. When that wasn't sought, she was just there to protect Jeffrey's rights. I would expect that the evidence will show that this was not a killing for purpose of financial gain, but rather a killing because Mr. Ayers believed that the woman he loved was going to kill herself unless he did something about the murder. Mr. Ayers at one point tells the police, my life, my freedom, my reputation, my soul, up against Amber's life, they meant nothing. Jeffrey's lawyer, their strategy was more, he did this, it was murder, but 
it was a crime of passion. They use the term heat of passion a lot because in California that can lead to a different kind of sentence. Once you look beyond the surface in this case, what you'll find is this was not a killing for financial gain, that this was not a conspiracy since November, but rather this was a killing by a young man whose life was completely torn apart because the woman he was in love with, he believed was going to kill herself unless he did something about her mother. Jeff had to plead not guilty. I think any good lawyer would advise him to do that because maybe there was a mental defense. Some kind of heat of passion led him to do this. And so therefore, he should be convicted of like a lesser crime. In this case, he might have gotten a deal where he wouldn't spend the rest of his life in prison. And he's somebody that had some mitigation in terms of problems in his background. And he did it for her. She's the mastermind, not him. Our justice system puts a burden on the prosecutor of proving every element beyond a reasonable doubt. Joy Walensky was Amber's attorney. She fought tooth and nail that there was never a conspiracy. The whole thing was on Jeff Bears. That was her defense. This is not the product of a mature, well thought out plan or suggestion of a plan to kill someone. My first take on it was it was immature. So you had this idea that A, $300,000 is gonna buy you a home and set you up in a lifestyle. And B, it, it seemed like the fantasies that children would write to each other. You know, I hate my mom, I hate my dad, I wish they weren't here. This is a foolish, silly letter that was unfortunately sent to a young man who obviously had his own problems and his own agenda. In court, Ms. Walensky had to admit that Amber wrote the letter, but tried to dismiss it as just the fanciful writings of a young girl. If you have a first-degree murder that is planned and thought out, there is usually not the need for the type of violent killing that this killing indicates there was. For the defense, they really are trying to paint a picture of Amber is angry at her mom, but she wouldn't have gone to kill her. She had told Jeffrey that her mom was abusive to her and she was suicidal. And I think that's what drove him to kill the mom, to be her knight in shining armor. She did whatever she could to push Jeff into this. All of a sudden, she just stopped, faced him, and said, if you don't do something about my mother, I'm going to kill myself. The trial captures the attention of the press and the public. The pretty cheerleader, honor student, and the sullen, awkward loner may seem like something out of central casting for a movie. But the truth is much deeper than what it seems on the surface. What attracted readers to the story is that you have the story of this kind of D&D &D loner and the cheerleader. I think once you start reading some of the coverage and you really look into who Amber Bray was, they're not necessarily polar opposites. From talking to people, she was very manipulative of Jeff. In fact, one way she was pushing Jeff to do this 
was saying, if my mother's not killed, I'm going to kill myself. Are you acquainted with Jeffrey Ayers? Yes. Now, during the time frame between November of 1995 and January of 1996, in any of your conversations with him, did he appear to be upset? Yes, he was. He had told me that he was sitting down watching his favorite movie, and Amber was playing a game on, her, on his computer. And all of a sudden, she just stopped, faced him, and said, if you don't do something about my mother, I'm going to kill myself. I think she does check a lot of those boxes that people might associate with a psychopath. Also, she's an 18-year-old that hates her mother. Jeff was getting something from Amber as a hero or a protector, and Amber was getting somebody that she could sway and influence. During the time that you were with both Mr. Ayers and Miss Bray, did you ever hear her complain about her mother? Yes. What did she say? She said that she hated her mother and that sometimes she wished she was dead. Mr. Ayers was present when that happened? Yes. An individual who is psychopathic will look for somebody who's an easy mark. So they're looking to dominate the other person and get their needs met without regard for that person's rights. She learned she could, in fact, get him to do things she wanted. And the question was, could she in fact get him to do this? The answer turned out yes. Where were you when Amber made this comment? I was sitting in my living room behind uh, the GM's table. Who else was present? Whoever was gaming that night. I know Jeff was there. What do you mean by gaming? We were role playing. What game is this that you're talking about? At that point in time, we were playing Dungeons and Dragons. Is there an object to the game? The objective is for your party to get through all of this stuff and get to the end, rescue whatever or kill whatever, and you get the, the treasure for it. It's to rescue somebody or get a treasure. Right. And you have to kill to do this? They really are trying to work that thread of Jeff, the weird loner. In fact, her defense attorney will point out early on that because of his addiction to role-playing games, that gave him the predilection for violence. The very first explanation Mr. Ayers ever gave was that it was either her or Amber, is that right? That's correct. And the very last explanation he gave was that he told Amber that the alternative was her dying, and he just couldn't handle that. That's correct. Mr. Ayers at no time ever suggested to you that this was for financial gain, did he? That's correct. His defense is really built around the idea that I did this, but I did this because uh, of Amber. I did this out of the heat of passion. The uh, fatal wound that you found from your performing the autopsy, could you tell us what the nature of that wound was, please? That was a stab wound in the, into the left part of the lower neck. The stab wound went across the lower neck behind the windpipe. Amber conducted herself absolutely stone-cold sober not crying, not sad, not, not excited. 
the stab wounds and the amount of blood was so bad when the police department would send all the officers that witnessed that scene for a post-traumatic uh, stress debriefing they tell you, okay, these, this is what you can expect. You're gonna relive this in your mind. You're not gonna be able to shut it down. You may have a panic attack. You may wake up in the middle of the night reliving the incident. There are many, many different kinds of wounds that were sustained by Ms. Hagia. Isn't it true that this type of stabbing, repeated stabbing, is generally a type of anger murder? In the forensic pathology, we do use the term crime of passion. It would not be inconsistent with that. I think that initially, the jury was very taken and impressed. Amber looked very good in court, not the type of monster that the jury was maybe looking for. But when that piece of evidence came in from the house in her handwriting, I think that changed a lot of minds. Dear Jeffrey, what do you think of this? Me? You and Benji all go out one night. Someone breaks into the house and kills Amy and mom. Here's how the money thing works out. Start with 310,000 estimated, 7,000 for burial, 190,000 for the house in Riverside County. They're gonna take the money and they're going to move to Riverside. It's almost like she got him to do it by promising her in his future. Have I snapped plotting murder and stuff? Well, after years of abuse, I've had it. Love, Amber Mary Bray. She details a lot about how he should do it, and Jeff's responses are equally chilling. Dear Amber, we'll stay together literally until death do us part. I swear to you, especially if everything goes according to plan, by this time next year, we'll be living in a beautiful house in Riverside County. And when the sun sets, we'll spend the night in each other's arms. I meant what I said on the phone. As soon as I can arrange it, your mother and sister will trouble you no more. Your chicken head, now and always. Jeffrey Glenn Ayers. I was detailed to go to the county jail where Amber was held while a handwriting exemplar got samples to, to compare. I've placed before you a handwritten letter dated someday in November. Did you do something with that? I studied the features in the writing, looking for the initial strokes, the ending stroke, size of the writing, proportional relationships, designs of the letter. Then I made a side-by-side -side comparison between the known set of documents and the two question documents, which is the letter and the diagram. And it, would it be your opinion that the writer of the exemplar, Amber Mary Bray, is also the writer of the letter Exhibit 1? That's correct. It was her own handwriting that condemned her. The plot was laid out on what they were going to do. Not only laying out killing your mother, but your baby sister, she didn't want to share the money. Perception can sometimes tilt the scales of justice. While Jeffrey Ayers is clearly guilty, can the jury be convinced this young, pretty, seemingly innocent girl was truly capable of planning such a heinous crime? Let's get started. At this time, you will hear from the attorneys. 
Mr. McKenzie. If you coerce or you can compel someone to commit a crime, you're responsible for that crime. Well, what happened here? We know that the defendant, Amber Mary Bray, urged Mr. Ayers on with a variety of techniques, one of which is, if you don't do something, I'll commit suicide. So an example of coercion. If you don't do something about my mother, I'm going to kill myself. So she coerced him to some extent to commit the crime. There's no question that Dixie Lee Hollier was the victim of a first-degree murder. This was planned, it was premeditated, it was deliberated. And she died a horrible, horrible death. Amber Mary Bray made a statement in November of 1995. I hate that bitch. I wish she was dead. Ladies and gentlemen, Amber Mary Bray made that wish come true. Thank you. This Bray had neither the intent to kill, in truth and reality, nor did she appear to know what it was that Mr. Ayers was capable of. Amber Bray is guilty of some things. She's guilty of complaining and going on about her mother. She is guilty also of making a very bad judgment decision at 17 in taking up with Mr. Ayers. She is guilty of not recognizing that there was something seriously wrong with Mr. Ayers. I know that after discussing the evidence amongst all of you, you will come back with the only just verdict, and that is not guilty on all accounts. Thank you. I don't believe the jury had a good chance to look at her other than the person sitting behind the defense desk. She never took the stand. She was very quiet. So there was no time for her to present herself as the innocent schoolgirl. You have now heard all of the evidence, and you have also seen some of the most powerful evidence of Mr. Ayers' statement. And I'm referring to the videotape that was done several hours after his arrest. There could be no doubt, as you watched that tape, that Mr. Ayers was a young man very much in love with Miss Bray, that he would do anything to protect her, that he was torn apart by his emotions and by the belief that Miss Bray was going to kill herself. The most important thing Mr. Ayers said in that videotape, he said that the killing was done because he believed Amber would kill herself if he didn't do something about the mother. This is clearly a person that was acting from passion rather than judgment, was a person whose ability to reason was obscured by that passion. And I would ask you to find Mr. Ayers guilty of voluntary manslaughter. Thank you. When you don't have a winning hand, you concentrate on mitigation, either to the prosecutor to try and plea bargain, plea negotiate, or to get look forward to sentencing if it's inevitable that your client's going to be convicted. 
the jury has reached verdicts in both counts. Is that correct? That's correct. And I will ask the clerk to read the verdicts. We, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Amber Mary Bray, guilty of the crime of murder. When Amber was in the trial, when witnesses were testifying about the murder and how it took place, there was no emotional reaction. However, when the verdict was read, she was in tears, very upset if an individual is more on the psychopathic spectrum, that would explain it if she had reacted to her own sentence and her own verdict versus what the witnesses were recalling about the actual offense. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Amber Mary Bray, guilty of the crime of conspiracy to commit murder, a felony. The foreman of the jury told me had you guys not had that piece of paper in her handwriting where she articulated all the steps, we would not have believed that she had the capacity to do something as heinous and evil as that. We, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Jeffrey Glenn Ayers, guilty of the crime of murder, a felony, was committed by Jeffrey Glenn Ayers as charged in count one of the information. We further find that the crime committed was murder in the first degree. The outcome of the trial is both Amber and Jeffrey are found guilty of first degree murder. They'll eventually be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. The jury didn't have any sympathy for them and the jury convicted them pretty readily. They looked at her as somebody that led him astray and they saw him with the blood in his hands. And that's when you lose sympathy pretty much right there. I was actually surprised that the attorneys did not provide any psychological evidence. There was no mental health defense, especially both of them being young. Mitigating factors are usually brought in to help understand the childhood and trauma that an individual has experienced to better understand the motives for the reasons they did what they did. I have to believe that the way Jeff was raised had a dramatic impact on how he related to people. That's my biggest takeaway. What a difference could have been made if Jeff had been loved. I really think that Amber was psychopathic or sociopathic and she found a fall guy to take care of what she needed to have taken care of. She wanted that money. She probably at that age had issues with her mom like a lot of girls do. And so she convinced him to do it. It's a perfect storm of two damaged personalities coming together to feed off of each other to violent ends. Jeffrey Ayers and Amber Bray dreamed of a life together. But their horrible nightmare led to the callous and senseless murder of Amber's mother, Dixie Hollier. They'll both spend the rest of their lives in prison. I'm Tamron Hall. Thank you for watching Someone They Knew.
There you have it. Another episode of the Court TV original production, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. If you'd like to see more episodes, check the show notes for a link. And to keep up with the biggest current legal stories, be sure to tune into my show, Closing Arguments, weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.